The following Dharma talk was given by monastic Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. Um, this weekend, we did a retreat here, the um, first time out for something that um, Gokhan and I worked on together to try and create a retreat that would be a bridge, a little bit more of a bridge between the introductory weekend and session. And so um, we did s- more sitting than we would usually do in just an ordinary retreat. It was an intensive, and we were in silence and um, and then we also talked about some aspects of um, Buddhist practice that are uh, so foundational and can really help us, although they are conceptual, um, engage with our meditation in a way that is skillful. That was the intent, and, and hopefully it bears itself out in people's practice lives. But I say all that by way of saying, as I was kind of... Um, stirring my creative juices around this talk, I was feeling the like, oh, what if people walk away and think like, okay, I've got the five kleshas and the six paramitas, I've got concentration, I've got mindfulness, vipassana, shamatha, like, okay, like, let me put it all together and like, make this thing happen. So I thought we needed to return to the great mystery. Because um, it's not like that. I was looking through uh, uh, one of my Dharma study notebooks from a number of years back. And um, I have written down, I think I'm probably paraphrasing something that Shugen Roshi said. Um, but I didn't specify that in my notebook. Um, but I kind of remember it, that he was, he was speaking about how, like, as we engage with the path and the practice, like, there can be this moment in the beginning where we feel like, okay, okay, I'm up for this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I got it. I can do this. The teachings all say of Buddha nature. I'm in. And then as we get into our actual journey, whether that is months or years, that recognition of like the depth actually of what we are undertaking, the depth of our conditioning, the pervasiveness of our confusion, And then on the other hand, the uncompromising, like mystical, non-conceptual reality that the teachings are pointing to. And it's kind of like, okay, I guess this isn't going to be like a project after all. So this is from um, the Shogunzo. This is... uh, the opening of Dogen Zenji's fascicle, Radiant Light, 
Komyo, translated by Kaz Tanahashi. Study closely Changsha's words. The entire world of the Ten Directions is the radiant light of the self. Study that the radiant light is the self of the entire world of the Ten Directions. The coming and going of birth and death are the coming and going of radiant light. Going beyond ordinary and sacred is the blue and red of radiant light. Becoming Buddha and becoming an ancestor are the black and the yellow of radiant light. It is not that there is no practice realization. It is just expression of radiant light. Grass, trees, tiles, and walls, as well as skin, flesh, bones, and marrow, are the red and white of radiant light. Haze, mist, water, and rocks, as well as the path of a bird and the profound way, are rotating circles of radiant light. To see and hear the radiant light of the self are the actual realization of encountering Buddha, the actual realization of seeing the Buddha. But still, we have to be pointed in a direction. The teachings of the Dharma are that like, you can realize that radiant light, that that's actually your true nature. So being pointed in a right direction, having some sense of why maybe I would sit there and like concentrate single-mindedly on my breath for many, many, many hours of my life, um, you know, the teachings help us cultivate faith that that practice is um, worthy of our time, of our devotion. We have to leap across our skepticism, our doubt. The entire world of the Ten Directions is the radiant light of the self. I mean, that's got to be a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. So then, okay, faith. Faith. Faith in practice so that we can practice wholeheartedly. Faith in the teaching that we don't have to create Buddha. We don't have to create inherent perfection. It's inherent. There's this um, story in the koans of the monk who is, um, you know, sitting doing zazen. You guys know this one, but for those who don't, 
and there's a monk, I think it's Masu, who is sitting, sitting in Zazen. He goes on to become one of the great um, masters of the Chan tradition. Sitting in Zazen and his brother, his Dharma brother or his teacher um, comes, comes by and says, um, what, what, are you, what are you doing? And, and the monk says, well, I'm, I'm intending to be a Buddha. And so the, 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 um, the teacher picks up a, a brick and starts polishing it. And the monk who's sitting zazen is like, well, what are, you, what are you doing? And the monk who's polishing the brick says, I'm trying to make a mirror. And the one monk says, well, how can you make a mirror by polishing a brick? And the other monk says, how can you make a Buddha by doing zazen? We're already Buddha. But we revert continually to a mind state of thinking that our practice is going to create the perfection. Even in subtle ways. I do this. Totally. We're going someplace. We're getting something. I mean, hopefully, over time, we become more and more attuned to that subtle impulse and cease. That's that doing, that adjusting, that making it happen, that is what we have to let go of at deeper and deeper and deeper levels and at very ordinary, palpable, workable levels, which was some of what we were talking about this weekend. We have to recognize all of that activity, all of the doing, all of the polishing the brick, that's going on, you know, much of which is extremely unskillful, but still we're doing it in an effort to um, try and be happy. As one um, Buddhist teacher put it, we are engaged in a continual struggle with our experience. So the potent moment of sitting down and sitting still and having to reckon with that, like there we are, nothing's going on. Wow, I am struggling just with my experience. And we take that off the cushion and like, wow, so much struggle. So beginning to see that struggle for what it is, becoming familiar with the flavors of that struggle so that we recognize them for what they are. It's not reality. It's your kleshas. It's not reality. To be with things as they are, we were saying, throughout the retreat, to let that radiant light of the self shine unobstructed. Daito Roshi wrote, and he would say this, 
This is good, good counterpoint for the weekend retreat. You should understand that zazen is not meditation or contemplation. It is not about quieting the mind, focusing the mind, or studying the mind. It is not mindfulness or mindlessness. If you really want to understand zazen, then know that zazen is not about sitting or lying down. Zazen is zazen. Just this. Just this moment. When we can really do that, that is a mystical practice. And zazen is not about concentrating or quieting the mind, yes, in its deepest form, and unless we work to concentrate and let those waves of distraction quiet, we can't deepen in. One of the um, fundamental sort of teachings of the Dharma is that in order to inspire our practice, in order to help us even want to cultivate faith in the first place, to reflect on samsara. And I think the teachings on the kleshas um, are an excellent way to reflect on samsara. Judy Leaf, who's a Buddhist teacher, she's coming here in um, a couple of months. Very exciting. An old friend, actually, of the monastery. She said, she said, we take our shit, project it outwards, and then complain about it. <laughs> yes! Totally! Totally! She went on to talk about how it's then so important to like own all of those pieces of ourselves that we would rather cast out. That's part of the um, wholeness. Um, but, but to see the way that we can within, within zazen, how one moment conditions the next. So when we talk about the kleshas, when we talk about emotional reactivity, you know, the, the kleshas don't like show up in like a neat little package, like, oh, here's a moment of greed. Oh, I'm feeling greedy. No, they show up as like a haze of just like suffering. Or, you know, even just a little like, ah, oh, like, why do I feel so? Or discontent or blame. So many subtle, subtle notes and flavors to the bouquet of, of the kleshas. But um, as we begin to recognize that then, then being able to tease apart a little bit and name, being able to sort of identify that sphere of our experience can be really, really helpful. Even in simple moments. So one moment conditions the next, right? If you're sitting in zazen and you've got a little bit of um, uh, enough concentration to be able to be mindful of your experience, then you can start to see, like, okay, all right, I like, you know, I don't know. It's always so hard to think of an example of like how one moment conditions the next live on the spot, even though it's happening right now. <laughs> 
as I get anxious to think about if I can come up with an example, right? <laughs> but um, this shift, really the shift is like, okay, it's not happening to me. I'm part of creating this experience. And to, to remember, right, to remember to observe. So the, the, the stone that gets dropped in the pond and those ripples go out, right? This is like, 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 they look at me funny and like I have a reaction and I start to think about like, oh, like, I don't think this person likes me very much. And God, throughout my entire life, I keep running into people. Like, why do people have problems with me? You know, I'm like not that bad of a person. I'm not so fucked up. We laugh and we cry. And then you think, okay, everybody's doing that. Everybody's doing that. So those ripples, it's like if you've ever looked at a pond in a rainstorm, right? And all the drops are going and the ripples are going and they're bouncing into each other and you can't even like track it anymore. It's just all that reactivity, except that it's not a pond. It's a world. It's a world with beings. living beings and weapons and money and power and corporations and the internet. It gets crazy. So look, see, all of it. I don't know, maybe not all of it, not all of it, but a good chunk, 90%, driven by the kleshas, driven by grasping and aversion, fundamentally, look. And so we're there struggling, all of us, in this like totally cosmic, chaotic, like chain reaction of, of uh, karma, cause and effect playing out across thousands of years, actually. We call that history. But look, our present suffering, so much, right? You look back and think like, oh my God. And all of the like infinite tentacles of that, that's samsara. So what are we to do? The entire world of the ten directions is the radiant light of the self. So we have to take in the teaching that we are um, practicing for the benefit of all beings. And I know that that can sound sort of like uh, simplistic and um, isn't so satisfying, perhaps, as a perspective when we look at the state of the world. However, this is the Bodhisattva vow. 
And we may think like, okay, well, to, to, to be of benefit, to live my life for the benefit of all beings, like, is that inner work? Or is that outer work? So much needs to change. Inner work. Outer work. Yes. Yes. When we're doing our deep inner work to understand clearly, you are doing it for the benefit of all beings, even if at the present time you can't see that. That's the teaching. When we're doing our outer work, do we realize the importance, the profound importance of how we show up, right? That the inner is alive in the outer. The outer is alive in the inner. It's non-dual. For me, this is how I understand our Beyond Fear of Differences work. It's not like, oh, we're like getting, getting away from the Dharma by like taking care of these like outer problems. There's no outer problem. Where do you think structural racism and patriarchy came from? Flown in from some distant galaxy? No. Here. In me. So then we have to see, like, okay, if we're going to do this work, if we're going to work on undoing patriarchy, if we're going to work on undoing white supremacy culture, yes, of course there are structures that we need to address. Yes, there are behaviors that we need to shift, change, transform. And... How are we treating each other? We can't bring the same quality of energy that characterizes those dominating oppressive structures into trying to undo them. You can't bring your aggression and your domination, wanting to give orders and get everyone to line up, into trying to open into truth, to stay grounded in the Dharma, in the teachings, in the paramitas. To stay grounded in wisdom, even when we don't see clearly, to remember the deepest teachings about the nature of reality, all phenomena, empty of any intrinsic, fixed self. Even as we grapple with and work to heal historic patterns of harm, both things, the two truths, Not easy, not easy, not a lot of good examples about how to do that. I guess we're going to have to figure it out together, find our way.
That's good. That's really good. I feel for myself how like that puts me right in the middle of my own practice. I have to reckon with my own reactivity, my own clashes. I have to bring forth my patience and my generosity. And what happens to those causal ripples when everybody practices that way? Oh, don't you want to find out? So in these teachings on the kleshas, you know, we, we, we um, circled into the sphere of um, non-doing. Again, another edgy place. It's like that can sound like passive or lazy, like a good vacation. (laughs) Non-doing. But actually, it's a very engaged practice of letting that radiant light shine through. Nobody can speak of it. That's why we have to do it ourselves and find our own way. The other phrase that we hear a lot in Zen, um, in Buddhism and and definitely in Zen, is is non-abiding. Non-abiding which is pointing to the fact that like the whole, like that radiant light of the self is shining. And I mean, if I knew more about physics, I would totally like get into it about like light and photons and waves and particles. I don't know a lot about physics, so I'm just gonna go with like, it's moving, right? It's not solid, it's not fixed, it's moving. And so we are like trying to freeze, like, okay, self, other, me, you, like, mm, 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 stay, stay there, stay there. I think I've got it, okay. And actually, it's not like that at all. Non-abiding is like, don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. Enter that, like, flow. Ken McLeod puts it very um, simply. He says, if you think of freedom as a state, you are, in effect, looking for a kind of heaven. Instead, think of freedom as a way of experiencing life itself, a continuous flow in which you meet what arises in your experience, open to it, do what needs to be done to the best of your ability, and receive the result. It sounds simple. That continuous flow is difficult to enter. But you know what helps? Great gentleness. I've been 
loving having Avalokiteshvara out from the corner. I don't know how we're going to put them back. I'm actually thinking, no, you're not going back in the corner. (laughs) But um, don't tell anyone I said that, because it may be a time for skillful approaches. That would not be skillful. Um, Yeah, just really appreciating how they've completely come alive. I'm like, where have you been all these years? And um, also just loving doing service with Kenan on the altar. And we were um, doing the Heart Sutra earlier this week for morning service, and I was officiating, so I was in that particular relationship with the altar. And as we were chanting the start of the Heart Sutra, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, doing deep prajnaparamita, clearly saw emptiness of all the five conditions, I was looking at Avalokiteshvara and the expression on their face, I was like, oh my, like it's happening now. It's happening now. And that um, beautiful expression, I thought they're seeing it right now. And appreciating too, you know, it gets pointed out from time to time, and this is a good moment to point it out again, that it is the bodhisattva of compassion who is presiding over this wisdom teaching. That compassion and wisdom are just teasing apart for our conceptual mind to better be inspired by something that is not dual. Avalokiteshvara is holding the nectar of compassion. Yeah, wouldn't you like a drink of that? Well, guess what? You can have a drink of it. Yeah. Gokhan mentioned yesterday the, the teaching that the Bodhisattva, one of the, one of the ways of giving, the paramita of giving, is to give no fear. And, you know, thinking about just myself and all beings in the whole like burning world and feeling like, wow, so much fear. And even, you know, as practitioners where fear may arise for us in our practice. To let go of a habit, to let go of a sense of ourself that we have, that can be so scary. And, you know, it came up yesterday, too, how, how perversely the kleshas can also, like, we turn to them for comfort, right? How we, can, how we can turn towards our, like, anger or our self-doubt or some of those, like, um, depressed states, even our own anxiety, and, like, kind of cling to it. We're identified with it. It's hard in fact, to admit it's not real, much less begin to put it down 
and we don't know where we'll be. It's scary. We're so identified. Working with the kleshas becomes working with our wish to exist through them. So even just to see like, oh, I'm like going to this and like seeing it as myself. I'm, I'm this, this feeling state, this really uncomfortable, toxic, poisonous feeling state is so deeply identified with myself. Like, actually, I think I'm going to keep it. So it's like, compassion. Can we be gentle and tender with ourself? I was thinking about um, this story that my mom told recently that I remember, because I was a, a little girl, it has to do with my brother, who's six years younger than me, so... Um, he, uh, he, was, he was like, I don't know how old he was, four or five or something, and he still used his bottle. And I did too, but this story's about my brother. <laughs> I did too until quite late. And it was time, you know, it was time to let go of the bottle. And my mom was remembering, like, um, she made a deal with my brother that um, they would ride out to the Coney Island Aquarium, one of his favorite places, and if he threw his bottle in the ocean, he would get a stuffed animal from the gift shop. And I was just thinking of that moment, right? That like little boy at the beach, standing at the edge of that like, big ocean with his bottle like getting ready like chucking it in it was time to let it go it brought him so much comfort I can picture him he would sit there watching TV Nickelodeon Lining back on the pillows of the bed. So much comfort, but now time to let it go, right? It's holding you back from your growth. And feeling ready to do that. Ready to do that. And throwing it in. What do we find? Just waves, wind. I'm going to end with a poem. This is by Juan Ramon Jimenez. Oceans. I have a feeling that my boat has struck down there in the depths against a great thing. And nothing happens. Nothing. Silence. 
waves, nothing happens? Or has everything happened and we are standing now quietly in the new life? Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.